This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with novelist Emma Donahue about gender and race and the value of fiction. Fiction is, is an amazing sort of technology for creating empathy. Here's Debbie Millman. In Emma Donahue's dark world, there is salvation. The characters in her books face unimaginable dangers, yet their creator ultimately saves them. No matter what the past has inflicted, the future holds a renewal. Emma Donahue is probably best known for Room, the book and the movie adaptation. She is obsessed with history and loves the mundane historical details that gorgeously color her narratives. She says if she had a time machine, she'd transport herself to late 18th century England as a rich spinster of scandalous habits. Today I'm going to talk to Emma Donahue about her incredible career, her wildly successful books, and the redemptive quality of her work. Emma Donahue, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me, Debbie. I still don't quite know how I got myself on such a prestigious design podcast. Well, the show has sort of evolved over the years as a show not really about designers talking about design, but more about how creative people design their lives and sort of the arc of a life. I've become sort of endlessly fascinated by how people construct a creative life. And oh, okay. I count then. So I understand that you first wanted to be a ballerina, but at about eight years old, you realized you were going to be too tall. And so you settled, settled for literature so you could eat more cake. Well, I didn't realize it at the time, but yeah, the writing life is a lot more relaxed and accommodating. You know, there's there's no one way that writers work. It's it's marvelously self-invented that way. You know, I know people who work only in a rented room or only in cafes or, um, you know, a shed in the bottom of the garden. I work very sociably myself. You know, um, every time my two kids even turn their back for a minute, I, I whip out the computer and get a bit written. You know, I write at their tennis lessons. <laughs> I sometimes write in the car outside somewhere and pick them up from. So so there's no one way you have to do it. It's, it's wonderfully flexible. So you don't have to go into a zone of sorts where there's specific rules and regulations about how you construct and create? No, I think those are a bit of a fetish. And, and you can make it very difficult for yourself to have good writing time if you insist that that good writing time has to be, you know, a day at home with your special pen. Um, and, and you know, like most writers, my, my, my days are so interrupted by other things. It sometimes seems as if we've added new forms of publicity such as podcasts or, you know, guest blogging. Um, uh, um, but we've got all the old forms as well. You know, you still have to be at the television studio getting makeup pasted onto you at six in the morning. So so I think it's crucial for me not to let my time be too eaten up. So that means, you know, I, I work in any hotel room, on any bus, in the back of cars even. Um, I've learned to, you know, ignore the nausea and get things written in the back of cars. <laughs> yeah, I spend a lot of time working on airplanes. It's uninterrupted and I can just sit and do whatever I need to do for five or six or seven hours. Yeah, I think having a very pragmatic attitude um, rather than expecting circumstances to be perfect is, is a good way to approach it. 
You were born in Dublin, Ireland, and were the youngest of eight children. So were you treated like the baby, or were you just expected to do everything else that all the older children were doing? I think I got away with a lot of um, time on my own to read and, and write poetry and draw pictures because the older ones were so competent. It's not that they saw me as special. It's just, you know, it, it's hard work to make the five-year-old clear away the dishes if all the teenagers are doing it already. So I got to sidle off and read a lot. Your mother was an academic, and your dad was a renowned literary critic, academic, and T.S. Eliot scholar. And I read that you might have been named after the Jane Austen novel and character Emma, but that you might be kidding yourself. So I was wondering if you knew for sure. My parents certainly claim that. But yeah, I think my dad was working on both um, the novel Emma and also Emily Dickinson and Emily Bronte at the time. So my parents dithered between Emma and Emily. But either way, it was the trifecta. A literary name. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, I understand you wrote poetry constantly from early childhood on and wrote your first novel when you were 19. Um, After your decision to give up ballet and settle for literature, was there anything else you ever considered doing? I have no other skills. Um, I was sacked as a chambermaid for poor hygiene standards. Um, I honestly have no <laughs> That's other That's a skills. whole other conversation. <laughs> I am, I'm incompetent in many things. I'm clumsy. I'm forgetful. Uh, I don't remember people's names. I wouldn't, you know, run or manage anything. So really writing is it. Luckily within writing, I have a lot of skills in that I'm, I, I work in many genres and say in recent years I've taken very happily to screenwriting, say. So I'm glad I have a, a broad range of skills within writing because I have nothing outside of that. Apparently, when you were a child, though, you had some strange ideas about what being a writer entailed. Well, I assumed you had to die young and then your work would be discovered. <laughs> you know, I, 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 this was an odd mixture of Anne Frank, who was the only child writer I'd heard of, and then Emily Dickinson, who, you know, briefly tried to publish but didn't manage it and so stuffed everything into a trunk in her room. So I just assumed that for your writing impulse to be pure, it had to be entirely private and that there couldn't be any, you know, boasting about it. Um, so you had to be discovered afterwards. Um, I now realize, in fact, it's full of relentless self-promotion. But did you feel at the time that you were doomed for a solitary, depressing life that was ultimately (laughs) short-lived? No, I don't believe it. I didn't believe it would kill me, but I just that the finding of my work was the really glamorous moment. Yeah, I imagine that moment, you know, with me buried and and then lifting the pages out of the trunk. Yeah. You got your Bachelor of Arts degree from University College Dublin and then left Ireland to get your PhD at Cambridge. It's a small island. You know, a lot of us get out of there. And most of my friends have gone back since because Ireland's economic situation improved. But life just happened to take me away. Yes, first to Cambridge for um, eight years there doing a PhD. Very happy years. And not so much doing the PhD full time, but just, you know, being a graduate student and getting to try out all the things that can involve that aren't working on your thesis. Do you get back to Dublin often? I do go back every few months at least, yeah, because I think um, you have to stay in touch with your home base, whatever that is. You can't get too cut off from it. And I've, in recent years, I've done quite a lot of work with, say, I worked with an Irish film company on the film of Room. Um, The play of Room was just on in England and Ireland, and I've done a few plays with the Dublin Theatre Festival. So I think, um, artistically speaking, keeping up relationships with the place where you're from can feel very good, because otherwise you have that strangely cut adrift feeling. I had an extraordinary experience in Dublin. I went many years ago um, for Bloomsday and did a walking tour of Dublin and then took a train out to Sandy Mount Strand, which was really one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. Dublin is is stunning, and there is no other green that you see 
like the green in Ireland. It's true. I mean, that's because of the constant saturation of rain. So, you know, it has a downside. But <laughs> no, I, I miss Ireland at times. But whenever I'm back and I'm having great fun with friends and so on, then I, I there's always something that makes me feel how parochial it can still be. Just it's still a small nation. Most people are white and Catholic and it can feel just too homogenous. Whereas Canada, where I ended up settling, you know, that's the complete opposite. It's very unsure of itself because it's so mixed, you know, almost Everybody's from somewhere else. Its national identity is is very loosey goosey altogether, um, and so I've I felt welcomed as a Canadian. Really, the minute I got there, um, it's not hard to qualify as Canadian. You know, you're there two months, and they're saying, "Can we put the Canadian author stickers on your books?" You know? <laughs> so it's a good contrast with Ireland, where there was a real feeling of you know we the Irish who have been here for millennia suffering. Right. Your thesis was on the friendship between men and women in mid-18th century English novelists, including the work of Samuel Richardson, Sarah Fielding, Charlotte Lennox, Henry Fielding. What intrigued you about that particular topic and those particular authors? Well, um, when I was doing my BA, um, it was strictly chronological. You know, there was none of this choice for students in my day in Dublin. So um, we'd only got as far as the mid-18th century and we'd you know, moved from Beowulf on up. And so by the time I was filling in my application in the middle of second year, we'd only got as far as the 18th century. <laughs> but I did really like 18th century novels. I liked how, how you know, rambling and chatty and, and funny and dramatic they could be. Um, I liked sort of seeing the novel be invented um, you know in, in their different experimental forms with people like Defoe so I wanted to write out some kind of you know feminist topic about the 18th century novel and I got very interested in how these authors formed real kind of working friendships and started to explore the concept of friendship between the sexes you know so instead of a man and a woman inevitably marrying or having sex you know there was a third way they could actually be friends with each other. I majored in English at the State University of New York in Albany, upstate New York, and had a remarkable professor who really changed my life, a professor named Deborah Dorfman, and she taught a class uh, called Austin Elliott Dickens. But there was also other ancillary authors that we read, and, and I was so excited when I was reading about the authors that you were intrigued by, because I, I didn't ever think I'd have an opportunity to talk to somebody on the podcast about Samuel Richardson's Pamela and Henry Fielding's Shamala. Um, and so I was wondering if you have any particular thoughts about sort of the sexual politics and, and sort of the role of gender in both of those books. Well, it's, it's interesting how unlikable Pamela is, you know, because she's in this position of endlessly fending off her rapist employer, you know, we should like her, but she gets horribly sort of complicit with the game that they're playing, you know, especially as she's writing about it to the moment. You know, Richardson really invented this sort of writing where it's like, oh, there's a knock on the door. I'll be back in five minutes. Um, <laughs> so she's writing about, oh, here he comes grabbing me again. Look, here I am running around the table. And so, of course, she's a servant. She can't just walk away, but she gets horribly caught up in it. So at times it's like reading something like Fifty Shades of Grey. You know? <laughs> they're, they're playing this game together. An 18th century version. <laughs> yeah. And of course, when you write about such a story and when you have a character narrated herself, you can find yourself almost complicit in the rape because everybody wants something to happen, right? So we all want something to happen. So it meant that when I was writing something like my novel Room, say, I was really aware of all those conventions that, you know, if you write about the evil male captor, you're in great danger of making him, you know, the, the dark anti-hero of the piece. And so I, I went to great lengths to deliberately make my villain, old Nick in, um, in Room, as dull as possible. I, I refused to give him an interesting childhood or 
interesting murky motivations or even some weird fetish. I tried to make him the kind of most banal form of evil, to borrow Hannah Arendt's phrase. Um, I tried to make him like, you know, every slaveholder, every, you know, Nazi concentration guard, you know, just a bit, you know, self-righteous and dull and kind of ground down by domestic routine. So in a way, I, I tried to uh, avoid going the, the Pamela route and making it in any sense a saucy game. I want to talk to you about Jack's perception of Old Nick when we get to that part in our interview. But I want to talk a little bit about your origins in first publishing. Uh, almost immediately after graduating, you found a literary agent, Caroline Davidson, who believed you had a future. And shortly thereafter, you got a two-novel deal with Penguin. I um, know. I still can't quite believe it. <laughs> well, I can. Um, you've said this was probably the most gleeful day of your life. How did you first capture Caroline's attention? Luckily, I'm a little bit afraid of the phone. I mean, not neurotically, but, I, you know, I don't much like the phone. So I sent her my entire novel because I realize now that if I had called her up, she used to make novelists read aloud the first page to her on the phone. So that wow. would have been a terrifying ordeal. And also the first page really wasn't very good. And you this know, wasn't your dissertation, which I know you've said no. only four people have read. <laughs> That's right, including my mother. So, no, I, I, had, I had written this novel at college and I got Caroline's name from, from another author, but I sent her the entire novel. And she very kindly wrote back and said there were a million things that needed changing, but yes, she wanted to take me on. Um, so, you know, I, I'm still with her. Um, I think your agent nowadays, uh, writers very often really rely on their agent as the one, as, you know, the one strong support in a sh- constantly shifting publishing climate. I mean, publishers... Um, go bankrupt or eaten up by each other or or they can drop you. There's, there's no permanency in the in the book world. You know, I notice nowadays, for instance, often the salespeople come to that initial meeting, an acquisition meeting where they're deciding whether or not to buy you. The salespeople have to say, we're confident we can sell X thousand copies before the editor has the right to acquire that book. So, so yeah, to have an agent for a quarter of a century who will, you know, at least take seriously every book I bring to her, it's, it's a great, it's a great support. That's amazing. It's sort of the way Walmart Walmart works with fast-moving consumer goods, where you have to make sure that they're okay with selling something before you're able to launch it, which is tragic and just terrible. What does it say about our culture? And again, my agent puts everything I write through at least one full edit just in the privacy of my relationship with her. It used to be that authors would go to publishers with, you know, just fragments or rough drafts and they would be encouraged and given money to keep them going. It's not like that now. You have to approach the publisher with really pretty much a camera-ready book. Isn't that incredible how quickly things have changed? I I read that you never really saw writing as an ordinary job. But when you started your career as a writer, you began to treat it as one, more or less. What changed? I suppose... (laughs) I would have had no reason to expect that I could live off it, for one thing. Um, I mean, frankly, that's an unrealistic expectation. Well, you've never had any other job. You've just always been a full-time writer. But that so easily mightn't have been the case. Um, I know writers who, frankly, write better than me but don't live off it because they sell well in countries where the market is too small to earn a huge living. Um, I've always lived off my American fiction sales. So if I had written just my plays or just anthologies or just short fiction or just been published in Britain and Ireland and Canada, I couldn't have lived off any of these things. So my American fiction sales have been my my mainstay. Um, So because I was published in the States right from the very start, I've been able to live off it. So yeah, it's a a great fluke to be able to live off it and do it full time. Many people have to write their books at the weekends. And, you know, they manage it. If they want it enough, they get up at dawn. Um, I met P.D. James once. I interviewed her and she started writing before her babies woke up. You know, <laughs> every day she'd get up and write murder mysteries before they stirred. 
while you were at Cambridge, you met your future wife, Christine Ralston. And uh, she's a Canadian who is a professor of French and women's studies at the University of Western Ontario, where you live. And you've said that growing up as a straight A good girl and the youngest of a large family, you found that being a lesbian was the one thing that made you doubt your place in the comfortable home and made you feel like a cuckoo in the nest. Were you conflicted about coming out to your family? Well, I was a bit nervous of their reaction, but in retrospect, I'm enormously glad that there was something that made me feel abnormal. You know, I, I, I yeah. think for every for everyone should have something that, that shakes them out of their complacency. But in particular, I think a writer needs something that makes them look at their culture in a slightly oblique way. And also, if you feel like the freak in one respect, whether it's, you know, terrible acne or your religion or your, your height or your sexuality then you will, if you give any thought to the matter, you'll develop a strong empathy for all those other freaks. So I think yeah. I think having an, an abnormality in some way is, is probably crucial to a writer because I, I don't see how else you would, you'd kind of tear off those blinkers of the normal. It's interesting that you felt like that was the one thing. I think for people that feel marginalized or, or feel judged or feel shame, you allow people through your work, I think, to understand the universality in that in quite a lot of ways, which really helped change my view of being marginalized in any way or feeling marginalized or feeling shame for feeling different. Or um, And I and I really appreciate oh, how you do you. that. That's a, that's a lovely thing to say. Um, because I also felt that when, one of the things that you said about that alienation, that you were deeply grateful for the alienation because it turned you into a writer. And um, I think that's an extraordinary response to feeling marginalized or alienated to become an artist that can express that through the experiences of others. Well, I think I needed something because I was I was I was growing up very happy and comfortable, but I didn't have the traditional unhappy childhood. You know, I didn't have some terrible painful family to write against. I didn't have, you know, um, poverty to write my way out of. I didn't have anything else to give me the fire in the belly. So, so yeah, realizing at 14 that I was queer, which, which in an Irish Catholic 1980s context was a terrible, unspeakable thing. I think it was For most was people crucial. in the 80s, it was. It, yeah, I mean, that made it even more difficult, but very few people in the 80s were like, cool, let's like announce this to the world and well, I be remember, applauded for our difference. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, you published your first novel, Stir Fry, in 1994. You were 25 years old. Um, you've since written more than a dozen books, the subjects of many featured children in especially difficult scenarios. And you've said you're fascinated by the things that make us feel at home or out of place or even monstrous. And we see this in quite a lot of your books. Slammerkin begins with a 16-year-old girl locked up in a filthy cell. Frog music includes an urban baby farm where infants are kept together in pens. And of course, there is Room, your bestseller from 2010. And I'd like to talk about that book for a little bit. Room refers to a room that is an 11 by 11 foot locked, soundproofed suburban shed where a five-year-old boy named Jack and his mother live as prisoners of a man who abducted the woman from her college campus seven years earlier. It is a devastating book. What motivated you to choose this particular topic? Motherhood. Um, <laughs> my kids were um, one and four when I heard about 
a particular one of these cases. There are not many of these cases. Is that, was that the Joseph Fritzl case? It was case? the Fritzl case, yeah. 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 There are so many cases of um, a disturbed white man kidnapping a young woman or a girl and killing her. It's very, very rare for him to keep her alive and allow a baby to enter the situation because babies are a lot of trouble, whether you're a suburban mom or a psychopath. They're a complication. There's a lot of groceries and buying diapers and so on. So there are very few of these cases where a child is brought into the situation. And um, yeah, I happened to hear about the Fritzl case, but if I hadn't already had my kids, I don't think that case would have struck a chord with me. I wasn't looking for modern headlines. I've always avoided, you know, the modern headlines. Um, I've always got my inspiration very much from the past when I'm, in terms of factual stories, my modern fiction tends to be invented stuff and not not fact-based. So, yes, yeah, so I was primed by motherhood, basically. And when I heard about Elizabeth Fritzl raising, she had seven kids in a locked dungeon, really, I thought, what an extraordinary job she did of it. You know, she used to set them little essays on what they'd seen on TV. You know, she... she um, also didn't want them to suffer by knowing what they were missing. Um, So she did this uh, amazing job of it and how hard it must have been. And then I thought, I bet the kids loved having her like available to them 24 hours a day with no other calls on her attention. (laughs) And I thought, oh, uh, you know, such a weird situation could be kind of a heaven for the child, even as it's a hell for the adult. Um, Because parenthood is asymmetrical that way. Many of the things they love, you know, the, the endless repetition of certain songs or books we find intolerable and the things we love, they often find intolerable. So um, it's, it's a very asymmetrical relationship the, the parent-child bond. And I thought writing a story of a child growing up in a locked room would bring out that aspect. Um, so so yeah, I, I really wrote it. It's all about parenthood really. and it, it tries to capture the kind of the magical side of that intimacy but also the claustrophobia. And it seems dreadful to say so because obviously I was parenting under great circumstances so it shouldn't have been at all like a prison. But I think every parent would agree there are moments when it is a prison. You know, you're, you're fundamentally responsible for these people, you're constantly making mistakes and thinking, "Oh, I can see that wounded that child." You know, you'll never forget that mean thing I just said. Room is told through the eyes of Jack, who's five years old. The Guardian described this as a warped version of Maurice Sendak's Max from Where the Wildlings Are, a boy for whom the walls become the world all around, which was, I think, the first surprising moment in the book where you realize, "Oh, this isn't going to be the book." we think it's going to be. Um, how did you get into Jack's head? I don't feel this was a, a great um, act of writing on my part because I had one to hand. You know, my son was five by the time I was drafting the book and um, I just studied him assiduously, you know, in a sort of anthropological way. I would I would look at the way he played with things and the stories he invented and I would study his language. I wrote down his grammar mistakes and I soon realized that if I were to use all those grammar mistakes, the adult reader would be maddened. So I chose just a few sort of representative ones. Like I love the way children try to make the past tense consistent and logical. So they will say, I wind the race rather than won the race, that kind of thing. Um, so, um, yeah, I studied my son and um, and my baby daughter as well. And um, I, I just, I thought about 18th century novels like Robinson Crusoe, say, you know, the idea of man, Jack, as a kind of an island culture, you know, that they'll have brought with them certain things, um, you know, like Ma's head has things like Kylie Minogue songs in it. So she tells Jack, she teaches those to Jack. She uh, she teaches him fairy tales. Um, she, she remembers bits and pieces. She teaches him prayers. So there's leftovers of the old culture. And then there's the culture that Ma and Jack would develop themselves in order to be happy and healthy and have some sense of agency over their lives. They'd have, they'd have a great sense of ritual and what things they do at certain times of day. And I read Prisoner's Memoirs, 
I thought a lot about Room as a fairy tale as well, or even as a sort of fairy tale in the first half and then a kind of painful stepping out into the world of sort of realistic fiction in the second half. So I just came at the situation from many angles, as well as, of course, doing a lot of research into, into real crimes. But I never wanted it to be just a crime story. For me, it had to have, it had to have literary value as well. You know, I wanted this to be a kind of a, a study of the consciousness of a child. But yeah, mostly I just <laughs> paid attention to I mean, Jack is myself. not unhappy. Jack is not an unhappy little boy. No, not at all. Um, in a way, every time I read about real crime cases or of children being horribly, you know, neglected in how they're being raised, the conclusion I would draw from that is, OK, for Jack, it's got to be different. So, you know, if, if some children are raised without language, which I think is a particularly cruel thing to do to a child, Jack is going to be bathed in language. The mother's going to be rhyming and singing and doing wordplay and, and little jokes and echoes and storytelling She's all so the time. inventive. She's tireless. And, um, you know, every time I've publicised Room, people say to me things like, you must be such a good mom." <laughs> I think I wish. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, I was able to imagine how to be a perfect mom in this book, but it's not the same as doing it. One of the things that struck me so deeply um, through the experience of Reading Room was how Ma managed to keep Jack almost oblivious to the sexual side of things that were going on. I mean, he'd go into his little closet, his little room, his little room. I mean, he'd hear the creaking of the bed. But it really felt like you were able to almost protect him from that in a lot of ways. How did you go about doing that? Well... In a way, I always knew, it's not much of a spoiler to say, I always knew this would, would, would be the story of an escape because I was very interested in how they would have to adjust on the other side when Jack encountered the the wider world for the first time. So in a way, I worked back from that in terms of characterization. I thought, OK, this woman is going to not only keep the child alive, so she's going to be scrupulous about things like hygiene and keeping his spirits up and nutrition, um, but she's going to make him you know, strong and skilled and obedient enough that he'll be able to follow her instructions and get out of there. So um, I had to assume that she'd sort of taught him everything he needed to know. Um, So protecting him from some of the nastier aspects of the situation was part of that. And also, I thought it was likely that... in. I looked at a few kidnapper and captive situations, even where there wasn't a child born into it, and and a weird domestic routine seems to build up. You know, one case in Belgium when he was holding a a girl of about 12 for several years, he used to, like, you know, give her homework to do. He'd tutor her in certain subjects. So, you know, I thought even there, it doesn't remain this kind of gothic-y SM sex situation. You know, these situations always become kind of domestic and dulled in some ways. And and you, you work out some kind of accommodation with the other person even if one of you, in theory, holds all the cards. So I thought it was plausible, at least, that Ma would have been able to protect her son by sort of striking a kind of a deal with the captor of, you don't get to be close to this child, you don't get to play daddy. So, yes, she she hides Jack away from him. Um, And that, because that's starting to break down slightly, you know, the the captor brings Jack a remote-controlled toy, so that's almost sort of seducing him. That's like the apple in Eden. Um, Ma so doesn't want there to be some kind of father-child relationship between this man and and her boy, um, that that's when she starts to think about the escape. So I was very interested in what agency she would have, even though in theory she's a prisoner. You know, she's a she's a very wily plotting kind of prisoner. And um, I also, you know, put a lot of religious echoes into the story too, because as well as it being a fairy tale, because of my Irish Catholic background, I saw it very much as a sort of a Mary and Jesus story. You know, the whole virgin birth thing, my insisting that, you know, this child is all mine, you know, that there's, there's nothing of the devil in you, um, or calling the captor old Nick, say. Um 
But I didn't want any of this kind of, in a way, scholarly background to show up in the book. So a lot of people, they buy the book in Walmart and they write to me and they say, oh, that cute little boy, I was so sad for him. And I think, great, the book worked for them. And then the graduate students are writing about, you know, uh, Plato and the cave in room. And and each of them is getting from the book what they need. So I I like when a book can contain a lot of interesting thought, but but not where it's learning too, uh, too much. On, on the outside. I was really fascinated by how some people compared the book to Carmack McCarthy's The Road. And I read that that actually that was one of the triggers. Was a key inspiration. Um, two novels I had read. One was Lionel Shriver's We Need to Talk About Kevin. Which is one of the most extraordinary books and movies. Oh, so chilling. And of it, the last, it's, yeah. it's such a good repost. Anyone says, oh, you need to be a mother to write about motherhood. I always say, no, no, Lionel Shriver managed it just fine. So that book is, is very dark on the mother-child bond, but it's very good about naming the unspeakable in its exploration of that relationship. You know, those moments where you resent your child or you look at them and you think, you know, you're a demon and nobody nobody can see it but me. <laughs> so it's very good on the sort of claustrophobia of it. But also um, The Road I had just read and that struck me as such a wonderfully kind of archetypal story of a, a father and child, you know, going through the wilderness together looking for a safe place. And I found myself thinking, like, what would a similar mother-child story be? And I thought, oh, it would be a story of enclosure. You know, all those myths about, um, say, you know, Perseus born to a virgin who'd been walled up, um, Rapunzel, the idea of that the locked-up woman getting pregnant, I thought it has some very, very uh, deep cultural roots. And as I was looking for the connections between the two novels, I actually read that, and I don't know if this is true, but that there are some people that think that Cormac McCarthy wrote The Road as a response to the custody battle that he was having with... Really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know. Interesting, in the film of The Road, the mother is far less blamed, maybe because you actually see her. You know, Charlize Theron is right there, so you don't judge her the way you do the mother in The Road, the book, who is only kind of quoted in retrospect. And I think to want your child to die before somebody can, you know, roast him on a spit is is a fair enough response, you know. You've said that you never had Jack and his mother say, I love you to each other, and have stated that if you needed to do that, you would have failed as a writer. This is Why a bit of a, a cultural bias, right? If you're from Ireland and you move to North America, you know, when you hear Americans on the phone to each other, love you, mom, love you, <laughs> you think, don't wear it out. <laughs> Save it. Those words are special, <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah, I, I never wanted it to be over explicit or to be in any way sentimental. I thought that the danger with this book is that it either gets rapey in itself, you know, that it focuses on the sexual stuff or that it gets sentimental. And again, when I when I was getting overtures from the film world, I thought, oh, a film has twice the danger of being voyeuristic because with the camera, how do you avoid it being voyeuristic when you're literally filming this? Um, and in particular, you know, films have a bad record for being sentimental as well. You know, because they there's less dialogue, you tend to go for those over-voiced expressions of emotions. So, so yeah, when I, when I met my director, I was like, you're not going to make them say I love you, are you? <laughs> The one thing that really, re- I mean, the whole the whole book sort of just breaks your heart and then puts it back together in ways that you would never expect. The one thing that I wished, particularly in the film more than in, in the book, was the cutting of Jack's hair. I didn't want Jack's hair to be cut. His hair was so beautiful. And then there was this whole big issue with the, with um, Ma's mother and the hair. And we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about that. 
I was wanting to mark some of the ways in which um, when he's in room, Jack doesn't have to be very gendered, right? Because gender is all about fitting into a group. And if you're not living in groups, if there's only two of you and you are, uh, you know, this intimate little pair, mother and child in the room, um, you know, I think it made sense that Jack would want to be like Ma. And, you know, she would always emphasize how similar they are because she doesn't want him thinking, oh, where do I get my ears? Those aren't the same as her ears. <laughs> so I think Jack Jack and she both having the long hair, I think it's part of that close identification. And then I thought, you know, once he's out in the world, everyone's going to be criticizing the hair because not only will they be wanting him to sort of seem different from his mother, but in particular, there's now this category of male that he'll be expected to join. So, yeah, it maybe would have been nice if he could have ignored all that, but I it just struck me as credible that he at a certain moment would submit to the cutting of his hair. Um, yeah. Not as a necessary maturing, but more as a, you know, here we are in the social world, boys get a haircut. But I also felt that, I mean, and I, I felt like in many ways it could be a metaphor, like this is a sort of defining moment. This is the past, and now you are who you are in the real world, so yeah. to speak. And he goes yeah. back to the room Again, and realizes. he gets weaned in the same way because the breastfeeding works for them in room because he gets to be like Ma's kind of buddy and companion, but also like a newborn baby. Because, you know, the difference between a newborn baby and a bigger child is that the bigger child leaves you and goes into the next room or into faraway rooms. But Jack never leaves. So they're sort of like a mother and newborn all the time. So again, giving up the breastfeeding in the outside world is it's just another way to say we are separate people now. You know, the world separates them. And of course, this is this is what every mother and child goes through, but gradually, whereas Jack and Matt kind of happens overnight. Right. So, um, so, so their movement into the outside world is just a kind of hard probably speeded up version of, of the growing up process. I want to talk a little bit about gender. You've stated that your writing begins with gender, and you are particularly interested in outliers whose resistance to gender norms shakes the walls of gender, including cross-dressers, stomping women such as Anne Lister, fame men such as Horace Walpole, spinsters and lesbians, promiscuous women or sex workers whose pragmatism strips the veil of romance off of heterosexuality. And that these questions of gender has led directly to questions about other power gaps. So I was really interested in in talking to you a little bit about what you mean by those power gaps. Well, I suppose I mean that... um Okay, I began very consciously with an an interest in, say, women's history, you know, the women who'd been left out of history. But, um, for instance, with my first historical novel, um, Slammerkin, you know, I I took this real case of a, a young woman who killed somebody with a meat cleaver, and I was trying to explore a possible background for her to to lead her to that moment when she would pick up the cleaver. Um, And so I decided to make her this teenage prostitute who then would um, run away and pretend to be a virtuous maid in a household. So I had to give her a household around her and I thought, okay, what if she's not the most powerless person there. Who who ranks below her? And I discovered that there were lots of slaves in 18th century Britain. You know, we tend to assume slavery was just an American problem, but far from it. So I thought, oh, that'll be really interesting if there's a slave in the household. So suddenly my my main protagonist actually is, is kind of middle rank on that. And then there's a manservant. And again, his position is different. So I would say that questions of gender have led me towards questions of race um, in a fairly logical way and the ways in which um, race operates similarly and differently to gender. Um, so I'm, I've been very interested in, in, in sort of hybridity, you know, people who are mixed race being read different ways. Um, I'd say race and gender are pretty much the two constants in my work. They come up a lot. Yeah. I want to read a quote, um, just an excerpt of something that you said about gender. 
Um, so this is your writing that I'm going to be reading. Gender is a string you pull and everything unravels. Looking through history for the women who also led me to the other, the slave, the witch, the whore, the freak, the poor, the criminal, the victim, the disenfranchised, the child, the migrant. Feminism not only gave me subjects, but required new methods for writing about them. I had to turn to this hybrid form of fact-based fiction because on the one hand, these lives demanded documenting. But on the other, because the evidence is so patchy, I needed invention to fill in the gaps. My feminism helps me write about rich white men differently, too, because I can sympathize with the way in which they are boxed in by the norms of their role. And this is so, so relevant right now. How have you been able to sympathize with the way in which men are boxed in by the norms of their role? And how can that help us understand how to better educate them to get out of those roles? Well, fiction is is an amazing sort of technology for creating empathy. Um, you can make the reader sympathetic with, say, a murderer in a novel like, say, um, Patricia Highsmith, one the talented Mr. Ripley. You know, we will go on the side of whoever the um, point of view character is. You know, um, what's the other one? Um, is it Dexter? You know, we, you can really almost force the reader to be sympathetic with anyone. <laughs> it's all about point of view. Dexter, the TV show? Yes, exactly. Oh, absolutely. So similarly, yeah. the writer who's spending all those months and years in the head of that character we're going to be sympathetic to. So, you know, be careful. Like, before you set out to write a novel from the point of view of Hitler, be aware you're going to become Hitler. Mm. Um, sympathy is is, is oddly uh, adjustable in that way. So, um, fiction, I find by literally putting me in the head of, for instance, rich white males, it, it does really help me see things from their point of view, but, but also in a way that's very critical of their gender roles. One example would be, um, I've got a, a novel about a 19th century divorce case called The Sealed Letter. And I thought it would be fun because it's about a divorce case which was inherently oppositional. I thought, okay, I'll have the point of view be the wife's and the husband's and the wife's friend who's a witness. So just to kind of complicate it, I'll go between those three. So when I was writing about the husband, um, you know, I would I would look at, say, the clothes of the time and those pointy collars men wore, which had two little triangles starched, pointing up, so they literally had to keep their chin up. You know, that wasn't just an, a, a metaphorical phrase. If you lowered your chin, you know, it, the, the starch cloth would stick into your throat. So I thought a lot about, um, you know, the rules of male behaviour and, um, you know, not letting the side down by showing emotion and the situations in which he, in theory, would hold all the cards and that he was the one who was calling his wife an adulteress in court. But also, it was so humiliating for him that all these details about his private life were being shared in court and people were just laughing at the idea of him as this old cuckold. So, you know, his apparently powerless position would actually hide a huge amount of humiliation. And yet he couldn't afford to let any of that show. But I've also written a lot about, you know, I suppose if you think about it intersectionally, there's a lot of men who are powerless too. So, for instance, one one short story I wrote, uh, it was about a famous episode of, of sort of militarized mass rape in New Jersey in the 1770s and um, the, uh, the the British side and um, they they pretty much went through the town raping the young women um, and I decided okay it would be too obvious to write about that from the point of view of one of the frightened young women you know so I thought actually I'm going to do something more interesting I'm going to write about a teenage soldier who finds himself kind of enlisted in that and then I, I read up on it and I found the British were using a lot of mercenaries and um, hired soldiers from say Germany so there I thought okay I've got this 15-year-old from Germany. He's utterly bewildered. He didn't in any sense sign up for this for money. He was more or less sold off by his prince. So here he is virtually a slave in a foreign country, no idea what's going on, and he's being 
you know, put under pressure by the men in his regiment to sort of prove himself by raping the local girl. So I thought, now that's an interesting situation for fiction because your sympathies are horribly torn. And I want the reader to be, you know, on a sort of moral knife edge, you know, thinking, don't do it, don't rape the girl, and yet full of sympathy for the boy as well, you know, who, of course, is a child too and a foreigner. So I think a situation like that can really complicate and change people's hearts in a way that no simple political editorial will ever do. So I think fiction is is hugely changing to people. Your next book was The Wonder, which I just finished. The Wonder was inspired by several dozen real cases of what is referred to as the so-called fasting girls in Europe and North America in the 1850s who claimed to go for long stretches of time with no food. And a skeptical nurse is sent to monitor this girl in your book, determined to expose the truth about how and why she was still alive after fasting. Why, in in the historical notion, why were these girls fasting in the first place? We don't always know because they weren't all interviewed. Some of them were real celebrities. There was one in, in um, Brooklyn for several decades um, who who sort of took to her bed and was often in a semi-catatonic state and her friends claimed on her behalf that she wasn't eating. Very often they seemed to have been religious, um, but some of them didn't give any religious motive at all. Some of them would be um, briefly interviewed by the papers and they'd just kind of boast like, I don't need any food or I love in light, I live on air. You can see them in that whole tradition of, you know, girls being extra, extra good and hoping to get social credit for it, you know. Women have never been um, supposed to be creatures of appetite, you know. They've always meant to put their appetites aside. So you could see them as just being, you know, extra good girls. They weren't all trying to be thin. I would say they were definitely pre-20th century. They were trying to be pure and good and spiritualized and special. Um, I learned about them maybe 20 years ago, but no one of them had the ideal story for me. So I I sort of set it aside um, it just never left my head. So eventually I decided to write a fictional one, but drawing on many of the aspects of the phenomenon I found most interesting. Because I suppose I love stories which are of a different time and place. So they have that sort of exotic time travel aspect that I enjoy in writing historical fiction. But they're also about something which is pressingly important today. Absolutely. So I connected it not just to eating disorders, which is the obvious thing, but also to young people getting radicalized because this girl is so caught up in her particular 19th century version of Irish Catholicism, which was really very extreme in its beliefs. You know, the idea that more or less the body was bad and the soul was good and you should suffer in this lifetime so the next lifetime would be good. You know, if you have something that hurts you, like, a you know, a boil or a scab, that you would offer that up to Jesus, that that would be like a special little present for him. That would make his day. So that whole antibody tradition within Catholicism, in which, I, I mean, I was raised in a very mild version of it, but I, I could still feel those roots, you know, the idea that, you know, the body is bad, the flesh is bad, pleasure is bad. So I was interested in exploring that through this particular fasting girl. Yeah, I, I've been working on the film script of The Wonder recently, so it's, it's great fun to be able to go back to something and tackle it all over again but from a different point of view because film demands such different methods, such visual methods. Anna, the young girl in The Wonder, is trying to convince everyone that she is living on air, and that is why this nurse, uh, trained in the Florence Nightingale methodology, uh, comes to witness. And you say this about fasting. 
What makes a girl good is to say no to appetites, to be pure, above sex, above need. So if you've got girls in the 16th century Italy and 19th century Brooklyn and a 20th century Belgium saying, I don't need food, I can live without it, alongside the massive phenomenon of anorexia today, I think that says something pretty strong about the way we have shaped girlhood. And I think one of the common denominators in all of these is shame. And as I started thinking about the notion of shame, I felt that there was quite a thread of that in a lot of a lot of the books that you've written. And I was wondering if you would agree with that. Definitely. And um, I suppose one good thing about exploring shame is that you can tell quite dark stories, but without them necessarily being about evil. You know, like say, you know, mine room, she's done nothing wrong. She did a great job. And yet she's eaten up with worry about could she have got Jack out earlier? Could she have been smart enough not to get kidnapped in the first place? You know, should she have told Jack about the outside world? Um, I find motherhood in particular um, brings shame with it. You're you're constantly like, well, there's another day gone and I still didn't, you know, um, make a treehouse with them or teach them ancient Greek. You know, <laughs> I was ratty at dinner again, another chance to make my child happy, gone forever, you know, because they're living on such a different time scale from you. You know, they're growing so fast and you feel so stuck in your ways by, by comparison. Well, I think you show the myriad ways in which we grow, communicate, exchange, live with family in The Lotteries Plus One, which is your most recent book. This one was such a rest cure because not only is it for kids, but um, it's really, really cheerful compared with most of my books. Um, it's a very upbeat family story for kind of um, the 8 to 12-year-old um, market. And but I not so a, enjoyed no, it. No, no, no. I loved reading it and I'm in my 50s. Oh, I'm glad. It's such a great book. It's so funny and real and heartwarming and optimistic and just real in every way. Thank you. You know, books for that age group, you have to be aware, a lot of them, the adults are reading to the younger kids or reading alongside them. So there's always a kind of a shadow adult audience just behind your child audience and you have to please both. I mean, it's most important to please the kids. But um, yeah, you're very aware that there are some jokes only the adults will get. Now, I, I read that there's an interesting backstory. I don't know if this is true, but apparently you were at a dinner party when someone it's challenged totally you. totally true. Yeah, this novel, the whole series, I'm, I'm hoping there'll be quite a few of them. Um, the second one comes out next year. Um, they're all called mathematical names. So the, the first one is the Lotteries Plus One, and the second one is the Lotteries More or Less. Um, but I conceived the entire series at a dinner party. I've never worked so fast. <laughs> so what was the challenge? What was well, this person telling my, you? My host, who was serving up all these great courses, you know, she's got a female partner and two kids, just like I do. And she said to me, like, oh, Emma, I'm so sick of books in which same-sex parenting is presented as this, you know, special thing that needs explaining and needs defending. You know, in, in some classic work like Heather Has Two Mommies, you know, there's the bruising encounter with homophobia. And she was sort of saying, oh, look, we're over that. Could You know, can you just write us a book in which it's just normal to have um, a same-sex couple as your parents? And I thought, well, I could, but, okay, I need, I need something a bit more interesting than that. And, you know, we need a bit of conflict somewhere. Or we need to at least complicate the situation. And then I thought, 
by about course two, I thought, okay, what if they had two mothers and two fathers? That could be fun. And that's, uh, even not a, that's not even the full story. Yeah. And then I thought, okay, so they'll all be from different parts of the world. And some of the kids will have been born into this family. Some will have come from adoption. And okay, what if one of them is delayed because he somebody shook him before he got adopted by this family? So, you know, I decided to see how many different forms of difference this family could accommodate. You know, um, the, the four-year-old girl is uh, particularly gender fluid, for instance. Right. I, I Briar becomes Brian. Briar becomes Brian, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> after an episode of, of hair lice, which I think is the truly universal family experience, yeah, Briar shaves, shaves her head, likes it, and decides that she's Brian. So I, I was just interested in all the different things a family at its best could accommodate. So in a way, this book is my kind of contrast with Room because it's all about expansiveness, you know, largesse in a family rather than sort of how pared down the family unit can be. And it, of course, I draw on, you know, not detailed memories, but the vibe of my upbringing as this very, you know, happy youngest of eight, where there are just always lots of siblings around with their interesting drama. You know, I used to go from room to room, sort of checking out the gossip <laughs> with each sibling. Um, and that sense of kind of safety um, and, and a big house where there was always a lot going on. And I, I put a lot of my own, um, you know, experiences into it. Whenever my kids, you know, if something funny happens, like um, if, I, if I'm if i grating the parmesan cheese and it suddenly springs all over their hair, I say, oh, I'll give that to the lotteries. So, or my daughter came home with some great tongue twister the other day and I immediately wrote it down. So um, I harvest a lot of details from my life and the lives of friends and lots of modern parenting situations, basically. Well, the interesting thing about the lotteries is the way in which you confront topics such as racism, homophobia, gender identity, disabilities, dementia. So many of the books that are out there now, Heather Has Two Mommies, they're, they're presented in ways in which the child feels excluded, and then they have to be sort of taught about the ways in which the world works. It feels very different in the lotteries. It's very inclusive, where everybody's living in, in, in a lot of ways the way Jack is living in room, where this is the way it is. I'm not complaining about it because this is all I know. And so you have the two dads, the couple that are two moms, they're living in this 32-room house. So they all won, won the lottery, I should explain. They, right. they sort of accidentally won a lottery and all four parents gave up their jobs and stayed home and homeschooled the kids. So that's another oddity. You know, homeschoolers are a world in, unto themselves as well. But they're so, living in the house called the Camel Lottery, which is so good. Well, you know, some people are irritated by all the family slang, but... Every family I know has its slang. And I thought a big family like this would have all the more slang. So any readers who don't like it, you know, too bad. They can they can leave and the rest of us can enjoy the word No, play. <laughs> it's fantastic. There's cardamom and there's popcorn and maximum and briar, of course. And all the, all the children are named after trees, and Bri- but briar changes her name to Brian when she wants to be called Brian. Um, but talk a little bit about that character because I thought that was rather brave. She's very young and there's a whole big issue now about when you are supposed to allow children that might think about their Brian identity. is by far, it turns out, Brian's the most controversial element in the book. I was all afraid when I was writing it that people would attack me for including a First Nations character. One of the mothers, Cardamom, is Mohawk. And in Canada, you know, this is a very fraught issue. White writers in any way, um, you know, stealing uh, Indigenous subject matter. So I thought I'd get slapped down for that, but not a bit of it. Um, Brian's gender status is, is the issue. Reviewers didn't mind, but on Goodreads, say, which many 
many writers are now afraid of as a site because <laughs> Goodreads readers can be very stern in their judgments. So some of them have accused me of misgendering Brian because they say that that character is clearly a, a boy, a trans boy, and that I am treating that character badly by saying she. Whereas I would say I've invented Brian and the Brian I've invented is a child who objects to certain things like the word girl or girly clothes or girly hair and doesn't object to other things like the pronoun she. I, I think by four years old, I think it's it's fine to have found that kind of middle place where there's some things you, you can live with about the whole being a girl package, being a female package and other things that you can't live with. And um, it's interesting because I've never before been accused of getting it wrong about my own character. So it's strange to have readers... You know, complaining about you that, that you don't understand your own character as well as they do. Right. Um, it's, I think it's just an odd historical moment about gender. But I also um, think it means that the people feel very close to the characters you've created. Yeah, they feel that Brian is real and that I should call Brian he. Presumably they feel that Brian should want to be called he as well. You know, it's, it's a little bit doctrinaire. But yes, it does mean that they're taking it seriously. Yeah. Um, you said that you believe every family is its own microculture, a little microculture held together by private jokes, special words for things. Anything you can share about the microculture of, of your family? Um, our family, I think we probably tend towards the the very frank, you know, because I was raised quite prudishly in Ireland, you know, like all oh, bathroom doors were locked, you know. In my family, there's a lot more walking around naked and very frankly answering questions when the kids ask, such that my, my two kids often start saying, too much information. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm erring on the side of frankness, shall we say. And um, it's probably quite a disrespectful environment in that they call us both by our first names. I mean, we're officially mum and maman because Chris speaks French, but really we're both Emma and Chris. And I would say the prevailing tone towards us is disrespectful and mocking. So I would say humor is crucial. Um, I used to show our baby son uh, New Yorker covers, you know, with their visual jokes from an early age. And I remember when he was about three, I showed him one which showed a man sitting under a tree in Central Park, tucked up cozily under a quilt of leaves. And he was like, ha ha, leaf. And I thought, he gets it. He gets the New Yorker. You know, he's in my tribe now. We understand each other. Emma, with all of the really progressive ways you portray people of all sorts, I was astounded when I read that you declared that you thought you were quite an old-fashioned writer. Really? Not in content, but in methods. You see, I'm coming from an academic background, and in academe, a lot of people... Say when I told them I was writing a murder mystery, my novel Frog Music is kind of a thriller murder mystery. And a lot of them said, ooh, I assume it'll be a really pomo one with an open ending and no closure. And I was like, no, sorry. You know, I'm going to decide who did the killing and say so. (laughs) So I I think that, you know, my academic friends would sometimes find my novels a bit old fashioned in their insistence on, you know, a clear beginning, middle and end, you know, and um, a clear point of view. And, um, you know, they bear some close relationship to reality. (laughs) I try and make them realistic. So in those ways, I think I can feel quite old fashioned. But um, I think if you're writing about material, which some of your readers find challenging, I think it's very helpful if you keep things fairly cozy for them at the level of uh, storytelling. I don't think you want them to be, you know, all confused about who the characters are if you're also trying to get them to sympathize with, you know, an 18th century mercenary teenage soldier who's about to commit a rape, for instance. I think you really need to know who is who in a situation like that. So I find old-fashioned methods like, you know, clear point of view and and closure at the end of a story, I find them very helpful for messing with people's heads um, through my content. Um, And the other thing I really believe as a writer is that humor is the most indispensable tool in your box. I mean, even in some of my dark 
darker stories like Womb, there are actually little moments of humour that, that lighten the mood. Um, and basically, as soon as your reader is kind of sharing a joke with your narrator, you've created this bond between them. So um, in something like The Lotteries Plus One, for instance, um, you know, there's a kind of antagonist figure who's the grandfather who moves in with the family. And so, you know, I, I would create a scene where, say, the nine-year-old child's point of view character is trying to figure out like what her grandfather's problem is, you know. And uh, clearly, you know, the reader guesses his problem is homophobia. He's appalled that his son married a man. But, you know, to the kids, that's just so weirdly 20th century. They're yes. like, how could he still have a problem with that, you know? Yay. So so that puts the reader in that position of, of feeling with the kids like, what on earth is the problem with the old guy? So I so I find humour absolutely crucial in, in getting people to relax enough that they can actually open their minds. Um, my last question today is about an article published about you on the website Lenny, wherein you talked about how you like to give a sense of resolution at the end of your books and go on to state that if a reader is going to bother to commit their spare time to you, that you want to turn them on, that you rather owe them a literary orgasm. <laughs> so what do you consider to be a literary orgasm? Well, it's funny, it doesn't have to be happiness because one of my novels, Slammerkin, it's got a pretty grim ending and my publishers at the time turned me down. Um, I had to go schlepping it all around town. But then when it was sold, it sold really well. And so I don't think people necessarily have to end with, you know, a moment of happiness or redemption. They just have to feel that beautiful kind of click of the last puzzle piece into place. It has to feel right. It has to feel like you have shaped and curated and, and smoothened the world. You've given it a shape so it's not the meaningless shambles that it probably really is. You know. Well, I think one of the things that I love most about your work, and there's so much work that we didn't talk about today, um, is just how much you provide hope for the most cruel, the most heinous, the most destructive things that can happen to people, by people in the world, can be overcome, and that there is hope for all of us. And, and I really thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters today, Emma. It's been a pleasure. To find out more about Emma Donahue, please go to her website, emmadonahue.com. This is the 13th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemelman.com. If you like the podcast, please write a review on iTunes and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.